0: Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. In this series, we talk to our cultural heroes and hear their stories, tips, and tricks as to how they weather life's storms. Our guest today is a prime example of what can be possible if you lead with your difference and create a space for others to do the same. Noor Tijori is an award-winning journalist, public speaker, producer, and podcaster. Her work includes the documentary, The Trouble They've Seen, about a mental health facility in Maryland called Forest Haven, which was one of the biggest cases of institutional abuse in the 20th century. She also created a documentary series on sex trafficking in the United States called Sold in America. This was turned into an award-winning podcast in 2018. Since Noor began her career in 2012, she's been shining a light on misunderstood and underrepresented communities and has also been a champion of women's rights to freedom of expression. For the past year, she's been producing her own show called Podcast Noor. A quick note, in our conversation, Noor and I mention a couple of people without explaining who they are. The first person is Seth Godin, who's an entrepreneur, best-selling author, and speaker. The other is Glennon Doyle, She's one of my favorite writers of all time and my personal hero. When I spoke to Noor, we were both snowed in. She was surrounded by nature in upstate New York, and I was in New York City, where the snow had already turned brown. So, here it is. My conversation with Noor Tajori.
1: I love my name so much. And if you, like... In Arab culture, if your name is Nur al-Hud, it's like your name is either Nur al-Huda or Nur Nuruddin, which is uh the light of the f- light of the faith. And um, some people choose to say their full name, some people don't. I mean I still go by just nur, but I'm like, oh, maybe we can play around th- with this. And so for the concept of my podcast, for podcast nor huda really is the whole point. So I'm sticking I'm sticking with that for the podcast. I kinda like it. I like it too.
0: And your trade, I guess you could say, is as an interviewer, as a journalist, so much of your journalism is about passing the mic to communities that are either wildly misrepresented or Mm -hmm. underrepresented in the media. Was there one particular story that Mm -hmm. touched you, that made you say, okay, this is what I'm doing from now on?
1: So my journalism career started when I was about 16 years old and I started working at a newspaper. Then I worked in radio, then I worked in local television, then I worked in digital and I went all over. When I was in local television, I thought that was like my dream gig because I wanted to be a reporter on television and I got to tell all these stories that I was pitching. But I realized that there were a lot of barriers that were up so I couldn't pursue the stories I really wanted to. There is this one... Uh, story about a, a case of medical abuse, one of the top 10 worst cases of medical abuse in the United States' history, that the case of it was still open 40 years later. And it was about these people with intellectual disabilities who are housed in this institution and they were severely abused and people died and, and there were lawsuits against it, which is why this facility had shut down. And it, when you like, I was living in Maryland at the time and you could literally go and trespass on the property of this institution. And all the medical records were on the floor still like 40 years later. I remember looking at a medical record of so-and-so's bathroom patterns and their out like behavior outbursts. Like it was so eerie. And so I started basically doing Investigative work around that and why the case is open, and I found people who had been housed in that institution. I found nurses, I found lawyers, I found different people that I wanted to talk to and interview, and I realized that the so many of the people who had been housed in that in that place or lived in that place had died already because it was such an old like story. But there were some people who were still around, and that. I wanted... Oh, and by, by the way, in the in-between, I had pitched the story to my news director, and they were like, no, you would have to trespass. We're not doing this. And I was just like, I don't want to be in this place that's not going to tell the story. That's like one of the most important stories in our town that we need to tell. So I quit my job. Luckily, I was still living with my parents, and I could do that. And I was also working at a radio station at the time, too. So I was figuring shit out. But I quit my job I pursued this uh, story and I shot it on like my broken camera and tripod and I realized that this story that I was covering was a form of justice that these people were gonna get and it would bring awareness to the case so like and even if nothing happened with the case because what I found out was that basically with the lawsuit that the state was just DC who owned the facility was just basically waiting for people to die off so they wouldn't have to pay out and stuff. But so, there were so many stories of light that came out, like, of the people who, who were there, who were now Grammy nominated musicians or music teachers, art teachers, whatever it was. And I was like, this is, like, they still deserve to have some form of closure. And getting this story out there got to serve as that. So I realized that rep, like, representation in this scenario was really important because their stories had been shadowed by the abuse and the, Mm -hmm. and the treatment in the facility and this like haunted place that people would go in graffiti and stuff. And I was just like, yeah, but this was some people's lives. I interviewed this, uh, this man who was housed there. He was, um, blind and autistic and his mom who was in her 90s ended up yeah. living five minutes away from here, from, from me, which is why I always tried. That story is like the reason I encourage journalists, like young journalists who are in, in school or figuring things out, to find the stories that in their communities to tell, especially right now, because there are and there's an endless supply of stories that are worth telling in your own community. And so many people are trying to always leave and go find whatever, myself included. But um, it was really important for me to work on those local stories. And I realized that, like, we, like, this story had the power of giving people, like, l- like, us hearing their voices. And the mother of Brian Slaughter, who was in her 90s when I went to her home, she had taken out a packet of pages of handwritten book pages where she wrote the story of her life down on paper so that people would know why she did what she did in the situation that she was in because she didn't feel like she had a choice in when Brian had to go Mm -hmm. And stay at the facility. And he was there for, I think, like 20 years. So it's hard. It was, it's really hard. And, um, and it makes you like appreciate when people actually build trust with people to tell those stories. And that's kind of been Mm -hmm. the recurring theme is proper representation is like why I, is every, is what I aim to do always because I know what misrepresent, the harm misrepresentation has done to our communities. However, the first step of that is spending a lot of time building trust. And so mm-hmm. I, that's why I, I do the stories the way that I do. Cause I try, I really, I, I mean it. Like I want to, I have flown myself out to people's homes to build trust with them on my own dime, even when like the interview didn't work out because that to me, that's worth it because I don't believe anybody owes you their story. So I think that was the first story that like I realized the power of rep- proper representation. And then everything else after that, it was kind of like I was doing it through this lens of how does this story serve the person, like give back to the person that that is telling it to us? And what is the mutual exchange? Because I really believe that interviews, conversations, when somebody gives you that story, there should be a mutual exchange. That doesn't mean you have to give them your deepest, darkest secret and carve out a part of your heart and do that, which I mean, I, t- I tend to do that, but I like doing that. But it means that like you're doing, you're listening with intent, you're doing it with the lens of serv- service and you're, and you're not, you're not going to take the, I, I always say this line because somebody, this anonymous artist that I interviewed one time, who's actually a friend of mine now, he, I talked to him for four hours. He had not given an interview before. And he said, I'm going to give you my story because I know you're not going to take it and run with it. And I was like, that's how people feel because that's how I felt. Mm. Like, and I still feel that way sometimes when I do interviews, like it happens so often. I don't take it personal anymore. And I just, I'm like, I just won't share it because I'm like, why am I going to bring more attention to something that isn't, I don't identify with. But, um, but it's the lens and the the lens I see everything through and the language that I try to speak in my storytelling.
0: Well, that definitely seems to be a theme with you, but What also seems to be a theme is the intensity of your subject matter. I mean, sold in America. I I was just imagining the psychological effects if I was
1: doing this. Like how, what is that? It was the first time I went to therapy. Tell me more. (laughs) It was literally like, I mean, so I went into this because I was so passionate about this topic because of my own experience with sexual violence. Multiple experiences of sexual violence, but the first one was when I was 12 by a stranger in an elevator at a hotel. And that was traumatic, but also probably like the, it was traumatic, but I like screamed and shouted and yelled to my parents, at, like in, in the breakfast hall after it happened, because that's what they taught me to do when somebody does that to you. I think it was realizing that Certain things that had happened to me were sexual assault, but I didn't know that. Like, I didn't know that, I think, until I was doing this work. And then I was just like, oh, shit, that was that, that's this. And there, it's like the subtleties are like the hardest ones to kind of grapple with. So I went to therapy for the first time in my life. And that's actually the only time I've ever been to therapy, which is only because I haven't spent the time finding somebody now because I think everybody should go to therapy. Sam. But um, <laughs> that was like when I realized, I mean, after that I could, I didn't, I haven't really done investigative stuff with that intensity intensity since then because it took such a toll on me. Um, and I've totally beat myself up for it for a really long time. But now, now I feel a lot more healthy in like how to pursue investigative things and the investigative work that I'm working on right now I'm doing because I'm in a place I can. Mm. I don't, I'm, I have no expectations for myself except to follow my curiosity. And if I can follow my curiosity into things that take me down a rabbit hole that I enjoy going through and then find answers that I know are going to help people, then I'm good.
0: True your authenticity, which is such a hard thing to find and to harness because I feel in general we are so heavily conditioned by the media since birth telling us who to be, what beauty looks like, Mm -hmm. what marriage looks like, what our measure of success should be. And I found that when we realize the degree of our cultural conditioning Mm -hmm. comes this desire to unlearn everything that has been instilled in us, strip it back, and learn our truth, our authenticity, and what we actually want. And I'm curious, what has been the most difficult thing for you to unlearn?
1: I spent so much time talking about the importance of being authentic. I literally, right before I did this, I'm doing this podcast, just came from giving a talk at a Forbes summit that was like themed about authenticity and my definition of authenticity or like my take on authenticity is that it's not real. The way that we have learned authenticity is not real. And I learned this and it made me very uncomfortable because I was like, but that's everything to me. But I learned this (laughs) from my mentor, Seth Godin, who says, it's not authenticity, it's consistency. What we're calling authentic is people consistently showing up like, and acting the same way they act in front of you that they would behind closed doors and keeping up with their promises that they've made. And I was like, oh, that's so true. So, we're, yeah. we just want people to be consistent. And if you, and to me, that's almost even more deep than like this concept that we have, this pretty concept that we have of authenticity, because being consistent makes you face all of the different versions of yourself that you've created. It means, am I the same that I am at home, around my friends, around my work people? And I'm not saying, you know, you show up, like, to your work acting the same way you act with your friends. That's not it at all. Everybody has to, like, you have to lean into the role that you have, but that doesn't mean you have to change who you are. It doesn't mean you have to dress mm-hmm. differently. That means doesn't mean you have to sound differently. It just means, like, figuring out how you're going to choose to show up every sing- in every si- single sin- scenario and situation. And then I also continued Seth's thing in my brain, which I don't know if he would agree with me on or not on this, but I think that you can really, like, the definition that we have of authentic or this idea that we have of authenticity is only applicable to your relationship with yourself. Because... Mm you can only really be authentic to yourself behind closer. And that person is like the person you have to reckon with and then be like, is this the person that's going to consistently show up or is it someone else? And if you can make authenticity that much smaller and like closer to you and your identity, you can totally lean into like how it's, it's so much easier to, to visualize the different versions of yourself you've created because it, because sometimes you don't know you've done it. It's just something that you do. And, um, and you do it because you're taught that it's just like what you were saying. Like we sit here and we talk about authenticity, but at the same time, our, our culture media has taught us how to be, who to be, how to show up, how to fit into the box. Even if you came mm-hmm. in, even if you were hired because we wanted to hire you for you, but we just want you to be a little more this, a little less, this a little, whatever, you're mm-hmm. still always molding yourself, molding yourself, molding yourself. And it's okay to mold your skills and your messages and your tools to the places that you're in, but it's not okay to mold yourself into what people want because they're not going to know what the best version of you is. They're not going to know what's best for you either. And also once you realize that like, when you let that go and you let people show you themselves and you let people show up consistently how they would in other scenarios, you get a better version of them. You get a better friend, Mm -hmm. you get a better colleague, employee, you get a better leader. So it's like really... It really is that everybody's just too afraid to, like, they're just insecure about themselves. I think that's what it is. And once you're able to, like, be like, oh, this is just a little voice in my head that's telling me imposter syndrome and, um, like, humble yourself or your voice isn't needed, all of these things. When you kind of, like, realize that everybody has their own shit and everybody has their own insecurities and whatever, like... It's never worth it to show up not like yourself. I remember one time I was at this event. It's like really big corporate event. It wasn't big, actually, but it was a big deal, but it was small. And it was like Malcolm Gladwell and Ariana Huffington speaking. And it was at the Mandarin and and Columbus Circle. And I was the youngest person there by far. And then then the person who was a little bit older than me, because everybody else was a lot older, came up to me. And they were working the event. And they were like, how are you so confident in these rooms? I was like, because none of these people are going to think about me when they leave. They have all mm. of this other stuff that they're going, that's going on in their lives. Like, if they think about me after this, it's because I said something that stuck with them. They're not going to think about you spoke up a type of way. You, they're not going home to their families and be like, by the way, at this event there is this person who spoke up and said something like unless you're being absurd or you're being disrespectful that's not gonna happen so why are yeah. you gonna make yourself smaller in a space where everybody is trying to like you have and and just trust that everybody wants your best self to show up even mm-hmm. if that might not be fully the truth I but I think majority of the time it is we want people to be great and do great and and if we don't want that for people it's because you haven't like you're going through your own stuff on the inside and it still isn't about them it still isn't about you it's about the person, like they, whatever they're dealing with, so I'm just like I'm like I'm just going to be me. Okay,
0: so many things you said grabbed me. First and foremost, in terms of being in a room with Malcolm Gladwell and Ariana Huffington, we don't do anyone any favors by shrinking in front of people we admire, right? Or I mean, anyone for that matter. And I find that I shrink most when it comes to social media. Whenever I mm-hmm. give the platform too much power and too much thought as to what I'm putting out there, what I'm gonna post, I mean it's a story. It will go away in 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah, like no one cares. My social presence is a blip. And in terms of authenticity, I think finding our authenticity is an ongoing process of just trial and error. Yeah. I mean, I I agree with what you said that a huge part of authenticity is just about being consistent. What we aim for, or at least what I aim for, is that the person I am behind closed doors is similar to who I am in public. But I think identity is a complicated one because we all have mm-hmm. a caricature of ourselves that we construct from other people's feedback that we hold in our mind, like what other people think Nor is, right? Mm-hmm. Not who Nor actually is.
1: And you know what's so interesting, too, is I always say, like... I'm just so much cooler in person than I am on the internet anyway. So like, (laughs) I just want to keep trying to be that coolest version of myself, which is just me being me, like publicly. And that, like, there's a difference between me putting on a mask and being a completely different person and me just like trying, like coming out of a shell and, and, trying to be more me in front of everybody else. And it's not like I'm trying to hide any parts of me, but it's like, I so it's, it's like you're forever building trust with other people. And that doesn't mean that you owe everyone a hundred percent of yourself. Like you have to protect yourself and, and, and know and protect your energy and set your own boundaries. But as long as it's not making you exhausted, I always say that mm-hmm. that's the test Ask yourself yeah. if you come home from work and you're tired and it's not because you were working a lot, but it's because you were interacting with people in a way that didn't feel natural to you. And mm. what role did you play in that? Because it's easy to blame everybody else and just like, I just can't, I can't be like how I want to be in front of it. But it's like, but did you even try yet? Ask yourself that.
0: I do think that's something that comes with age. I remember being 15, 16 even 12, 13, coming home from a day of school and feeling so awkward about how I interacted with all the other students throughout the day. And every day, every day felt like such an inauthentic day, especially because there are all these middle school, high school constructions I felt I had to live up to in order to be Mm -hmm. accepted. Like I had to be heterosexual and wear my hair down and own nice butterfly clips, and I bought into all of it, and I did all of it, and it really felt awful, and it reminds me of what I read you went through when you were in high school when you dyed your hair blonde and wore colored contact lenses Mm -hmm. to fit in, and it was so powerful to hear how you decided at 16 that you felt more like yourself without these changes, Mm -hmm. And I can't believe you found it so soon and that you had this self-awareness.
1: That really comes from a place of desperation, too. I mean, you know when you don't feel good and just like, how can I keep? I remember even when I started working in radio and I was working at a music station and I had to write entertainment stories and Mm. it wasn't for me. And I remember it was in 2011, so it was during the Arab Revolution, the Arab Spring in my family's Mm -hmm home country. Libya was one of them. And I just remember writing a story, having like being assigned a story about Kim Kardashian that I had to write. And I was like, literally my family's town is being bombed right now. I can't. And I just broke down and I was crying and I was like, I can't, this is not and i remember <laughs> i waited until the next person's shit like the next person's show cuz i was interning for different people's shows and i remember i convinced them to let me write a piece on cbs radio about the arab spring and it went it did really well and i put it out there and then literally corporate stopped letting people write like stories themselves. They were like, you can only use the corporate feed. It literally happened right after that. I don't know if it was because of that, but I'm like 85% sure that that's why, because I was posting about the Arab spring on a music station. I can't believe I even got away with that. Um, (laughs) but I, but that was like how I knew. And it's just like, you have to follow that. I've always been extremely intuitive and I like to a weird degree. So I know like, I'm very sensitive to how I feel about certain things and when I don't feel like myself. So even when I was, you know, wearing colored contacts and dyeing my hair blonde, and which is funny because what I don't always say, I, I've actually never shared this part about that story, is that that happened the summer after I went to Libya for the second time. Actually, the last time I ever went. And mm-hmm. I got my hair highlighted blonde in Libya and the colored contacts I got were from Libya and I remember my cousin, my mom's cousin, so my second cousin getting married um like there when we were there and she wore blue eye colored contacts to her wedding and I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, I'm going to definitely wear colored contacts to my wedding because I always thought that blue eyes were more significant." But then now I'm like I felt this way, like, and I also felt this way in North Africa, like, Mm. because unfortunately, even in Libyan culture, I mean, unfortunately all over the world, like Western beauty ideals are still so ingrained in culture. So it's like, I remember I was getting a tan or outside because it's like hundred some degrees you're out in the desert basically. And my grandma being like, get inside. Like you can't get dark, get inside. You have to be whatever. And I was just like, what, what? And it was just so confusing to me. And I was like, why are we encouraging this? And I knew that like when I came back looking just a little bit different, it was, and you know what the craziest part of that? It was the first day of high school. I looked like that on my first day of high school. I thought I was the shit because (laughs) I thought I had gotten over this insecurity thing. And I mean, it didn't really last very long. No one really said it. I don't know when I stopped wearing them, but I think of that even when I stopped wearing like colored contacts, it didn't, it lasted like less than a year. But even when I stopped, I still had to talk myself out of it. I had to talk myself out of, like, wanting to change my look. And it was a weird, it was a weird place to be. Huh, I never really thought about it since then. Like, that, I've never, I've never really thought about the fact that, like, I showed up to my first day of high school looking this way. And this was a look that I got from my parents' home country, but was, like, still set in the ideals of, like, America. I'm curious
0: your life is so non-stop and, <laughs> and your journalism often deals with heavy subject matter. Do you have anxiety at all that comes from spending time in these different worlds and bringing the stories back home with you? Or are you able to just metabolize your experiences and move on?
1: As much as it's my story, it's never been about me. And mm. the opportunity Opportunity to like share your story. Like I share my story, not because I care about people knowing me. I care about people knowing like the lessons that I've learned, the work that I've done. I always say this, like I, my dream scenario is that people never think about me. They just think about like the impact that I've made on them or they never think about like my personal life or my personal stuff. And so I just pretend that that's the case. And that makes me feel a lot less anxious because I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by people who I love and support me. And I think that more so like the process of the growth in that is that when I realized I was getting anxious, I asked myself who I had around me and Mm -hmm. what what like this direct sources of anxiety were. And so I like totally uprooted the people that I was friends with or the people who claimed to be my friend. And I've gone through more of like that personal journey, but for some reason, I mean, maybe sometimes it'll come up like harassment incidents or whatever it is and make me feel anxious. But I just know, like, I just, I know me, I know myself. I know why I do the things that I do. I've always said like, I would die for my work. I would die for like my met. I would, I don't, I'm not here for other people's like comfort. I'm here because like, I believe even like just in our faith that being human is a very temporary pit stop and for something that's eternal, for something that's bigger. So I'm like, what am I going to do for the two minutes that I'm on this planet? Because that's really Mm. what it is. It's like, it's literally, we have like a saying that it's a drop that like the human experience is a drop in the ocean of, of how big everything actually is. When you think about that, it's like, how can you, for me, when I think about that, I'm like, how are you going to be that mad or that anxious? Because you also have to like, trace back where, where their projection is coming from. Mm -hmm. If I wasn't Muslim and I only knew Muslims from what I saw in the media, I might feel the same way. Like if Mm -hmm. I only saw what I saw in the media and I didn't decide that I cared enough to do the work, to do the research myself, I would probably feel really anxious and get mad and whatever. Like, so I, I understand that it's not giving anybody a pass because if you feel hatred towards somebody you don't know, it's probably worth it for at least your own mental health to like go get to know them so that you can, right. but you have to believe that you have to like believe in empathy before you can use it. Um, but I know like, sorry, I know I'm going all over the place because I know your no, question no. is about the anxiety part, but I feel like whatever anxiety I've gone through or I go through is like more on a personal level with like what I have going on because I've never I was never really taught to care that deeply about what people thought and I think I've gone through too many big traumatic experiences where people have literally written think pieces about the shit that I do where I'm just like if I read these if I see this if I engage in this if I give validation to this I'm going to break and that mm-hmm. seems to be what some other people want for me but it's not what I want for me and so I'm just going to like stick around with the people that I know I can learn from. Not people who are like, yes, people, and only say what you want to hear because nobody around me really does that. Um, yeah. But people that you know have your best interests at heart.
0: Your work does seem to be such a big part of who you are.
1: Yeah. And your identity. How can you not feel personally attacked at times? I definitely felt personally attacked, but there's a difference between feeling personally attacked mm. and knowing it's not personal. Because yeah. even when I'm personally, there are certain, I totally have triggers. Like mm-hmm. if somebody says, it's usually when somebody writes something about what my intention is and they don't know me. And I'm like, yeah. how, how could you even, like, why would you, assume someone's intention. That's like the worst thing that you can do and assume it it to be bad, especially when like they're not a bad person and they don't do these bad things. So it's hard to hear that. It's hard to see that when it happens, it's trauma, it's traumatizing. It's literally why I don't really go on Twitter that much Mm -hmm. because I feel like that's like an environment where that happens, where people feel like they have permission to do that whenever they want. Um, But you, but I, even in those scenarios, I know why, like, I know I can trace back a handful of reasons on why they might be doing it. Right. And I know that they, I know that they might, they must not be happy because I never in my entire life have I ever written, like, a hate message or a hate comment to somebody. Right. And I've never wanted to. One, because I've never cared that much to do that, but also because, like, why? Like, I don't know that person. Why am I going to, like, assume something about somebody? Why am I going to... And you know what's funny is, like, a lot of times people will say things like, well, it's not like they're going to see it anyway. Like, if it's a public figure, and I'm like, well, one, if they're not going to see it anyway, why are you writing it? Like, wouldn't you want to write something that you think that someone's going to see? And two, if they're not seeing it anywhere why are you putting that energy out? Like, don't you understand that that's going to come back to you? So you have to kind of like, you have to separate yourself from that because it's not about you. Even when it feels like, even when it's masked to be about you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I completely subscribe to the thinking that most things that people say that are unkind jabs directed at you are just things that they don't like about themselves. Because You don't get so riled up about something unless it sits so uncomfortably. Yeah, that's so true. That it brings up some kind of desire or need to attack and be nasty. And that thing you said about the importance of choosing your company and who you let in, Mm -hmm. it reminds me of this thing you said that in order to build confidence, you have to choose who to listen to and who not to listen to. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, who is one person that you listen to?
1: I mean, I can, I can take this two routes. Okay. So the the context of that quote is that I had a mentor named Manny Fantas, who was my mentor in college. And he told me, be careful who you get advice from. And Mm -hmm. he gave me three criteria on how to take advice that I'm, I'm probably going to blank on all of it, but it was like, would that person, does that person want what's best for you? And would that person take that advice themselves? And then it was a third one, but those are the two that always stick out to me. So that's kind of always my criteria is like, if I'm going to take advice from someone or if I'm going to listen to someone, do they know what's best for me? And would they, do they, sorry, not do they know, do they have the best intentions for me? And do they want what's best for me? And um, like, would they take that for themselves? So when it comes to like personal stuff, it's mm-hmm. always going to be, like, my mom, my dad, my grandma, and my husband, Adam. And then when it comes to work stuff, it's, like, my manager, Adam. And um, <laughs> and I would say right now at this moment who I would listen to anything uh, for work stuff is probably my mentor, Seth Godin, who I, like, really, really, really love and look up to, and I read and watch all of his work. And so and any, every piece of advice he has ever given to me has like, has w- not only worked, but it has literally changed the way that I think for the better. So those are like, that's like the kind of small group, but it's always been that it's always been, it's always been like, I've uh, the, the people that I know who have my best, best, best interests at heart were always my mom and dad. And I was lucky enough for that to be my experience, which is why I've been able to pursue work the way that I have. Um, But even then, like I'm growing and I'm evolving myself. So really the real answer is me. Like my relationship with my inner voice, my relationship with my inner child, especially right now, like lately I've been doing this thing where anytime I'm stuck on something, I meditate, I close my eyes and I go down in my brain to like this, this image of this field or the space. And I meet with my inner child and I ask her a question and I'm like, Hey, I really need help explaining this thing. Like, what is it? And I have this internal dialogue. And actually that's my biggest realization of last year too. was like, all of the answers that I am looking for are inside of me. And one of the pieces of advice that Seth Godin actually gave me was reassurance is futile. Like if you're a pioneer and you're on the forefront. I listened to him on your podcast that episode. So good. So, He's good. so it's like, did, did you like everything that he said? You were like, me like yes, I need this. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was the reassurance is futile
0: idea that really hit home. That if you're insecure about something, there is no amount of reassurance that anyone can possibly offer you that can put your mind at ease. That is so true. Mm -hmm. There was a certain time in my life where I would not buy anything without texting a friend to ask them what their opinion was about Um, whatever it is I was trying to buy. And I mean, he's totally right. Like there was nothing that anyone could have said to reassure me because I'd always doubt them. Yeah. So I'm thinking, what am I doing creating this cyclical rabbit hole for myself? So why are you
1: asking? It's like, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's because you're like, you're looking for an answer that you don't even know. And even if they give you a straight answer, you're never going to be happy with it. And it's also because you're asking people about something that they don't have the answers to. Like stop asking people what, if you should take this job, are they inside your brain? Are they inside your heart? Like, how are you going to, how can you tell, how can you say that? Like, totally. It's because we're too scared to look inside of ourselves. So we look for everywhere else, everywhere else. And we're like, you must have the answers because I don't think I do. That's actually something I learned from Glennon Doyle. She wrote in her book, Carry On Warrior, which was her first book. And of her three, she's amazing. I really love reading her work. Oh, I'm obsessed with her. Yeah. And she, um, she writes in carry on warrior. Like when she found out that her husband had cheated on her, she Googled, like, what do you do if your husband cheats on you, but he's still a really good dad. And she was like, the priest's answer was different. The like mm-hmm. parenting magazine was different. That this person's answer was different. And she was like, all of these people had different answers, which made me realize there wasn't one right answer, which made me realize you have the right answer for you. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we always looking for reassurance from everybody else? Because you're too scared to just tell yourself that you know. Yeah, that's what Glennon calls our inner knowing with a capital K. Yeah, that's the intuition. That's like, That's like the, to me, that sense of intuition is, it's like God inside of you. It's God guiding you. It's being able to know that you are something so great. I always say this about like when people say, you know, do you get nervous to speak? Or sometimes when I'm giving a speech or I'm on a panel or I'm doing something or I'm telling even a story in person to some, to like Adam, I will literally shake like my insides, my organ, like it literally feels like my organs are shaking and it's, and I don't even call it nerves anymore. Like nervousness. It's the weight of the truth. It's like feeling something so big and so great that your human physical body literally cannot carry it on its own. And it has to come out. And I'm like, imagine you're feeling that greatness inside of you. And you're like, I'm too scared to speak. No, it's what you have Mm. to say is big. It's great. And we need Mm. to hear you speak. We need to hear what you have to say because it's making you feel that way. I don't care how arbitrary it is. Like if if you feel that way about something, it's important enough for you to say it and for you to talk about it. And I think that some people just stop at the nerves and then they, they identify that as something that is bad, but it's actually quite magical.
0: Thank you so much for for showing up and for your time. There is one more question which
1: I would let's like go. to ask. Yeah, let's do it. Also, thank you, like, thank you for being, thank you for doing more research than probably anybody I've ever done a conversation with, and thank you for being so open and personal too, and sharing part of your journey. I mean, I know we didn't talk or go into it when referencing the Forest Haven, but you made it personal, and I appreciate that because it makes me like realize. Even now, like that work is still so important. So thanks. That means so much.
0: And the one thing that does come across so true, so clear in all of your interviews is that your intentionality is just—it is transparent. Like any soundbite from you, you're like, I don't know who she is, but she cares. And that is one <laughs>
1: thing that really Thank comes you. through. I hope I'm consistent. Yeah, right. But that's only something you know. That's not. Well, it's so funny because sometimes we'll like hear old interviews or I'll see old things that I've done. And I'm like, wow, I've been using the same language and I've been saying the same things for over 10 years. And some, I get so excited because sometimes I don't want to see like my old <laughs> stuff, but I'm like, oh, I've been saying, like I've been on this. And I, I yeah. always joke with Adam. I'm like, at least I'm consistent. People can say whatever they want about me, but at least I'm consistent. And when I'm learning, I'm open about learning and I'm open. I'm not married to anything I've ever said because I'm still learning and I hope I'm forever learning. Um, but anyway, yes. Your last question. <laughs> what drives you? What drives me? What drives me is knowing how temporary life is and that mm. this is just a pit stop. I recently like thought about how what gratitude actually looks like. We have a, a saying alhamdulillah which is all praises and thanks are due to God and you, we say you say it after like everything. You're like Anything, any little tiny good thing that you had, you had like a great cup of ice water and you're really great. Like, I'm just so grateful. And so you're kind, we're always like in, I always try to like stay in this like abundance gratitude mindset. And doing that has made me mindful of like my human experience. But like, I hit this point of gratitude where I was like, thank you. Like, alhamdulillah for being chosen as a soul to have this human experience because it is so temporary and it is so dramatic and it is so traumatic and it is so glorious and it is so beautiful. But if you are on this planet, you are like one of trillions that got chosen to be here. One of infinity that got chosen to be here for this temporary amount of time. What are you going to do with this time? So what drives me is knowing that tomorrow is not promised and five minutes later is not prom- Like. Nothing is promised, so I will do every single thing that I can. And if I can go to bed and be like, if I don't wake up tomorrow, I am like, I'm happy with the life that I've lived, then I'm good. And right now, I literally, like I always say, if I die tomorrow, I did everything I needed to do because I'm, I have spent the last over 10 years just following my curiosity and trying to serve people. And that's all really like, that's all I care about.
0: Thank you for sharing that, first of all. And I come from such a similar school of thought. It reminds me so much everything you're saying about the pale blue dot. Have you watched this, this Carl Sagan? The, the documentary? Yeah, it, but it's the specific clip where it's like uh, they, he just zooms out and you just see Earth and as this. And that's planet Earth?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, one, well, I, so I, kn- I know of what you're talking about and I've, I've seen this clip, but one also docu-series that really changed my perspective similarly is One Strange Rock.
0: The Darren Aronofsky.
1: (laughs) Darren Aronofsky. Yes.
0: I'm obsessed. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Same. It's that and it's also – it's actually very – have you ever read uh, Sartre? It's like the most pretentious thing I'll ever say. But he writes this book called Existentialism is a Humanism. And that is – it's a similar train of thought because what you're saying is technically Kind of nihilist in terms of like, (laughs) like we're all temporary. We're visiting earth. We're all, but there's so much freedom in that. You know, there's so much freedom knowing that nothing is promised. So it's like literally, fuck it. Like, don't overthink anything because nothing means anything. But I, of course, I find things meaningful, but nothing means anything. And there,
1: for me, do you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't give too much weight to anything. the The way that I think about it is a little different in that. Yeah. Like nothing matters, but the, but the things that don't matter to me are like the things people say about you. Uh, like the, the, the the thing that you're going to get upset about whatever it is. Yes. But I, the way that I think about it is that you have this limited amount of time on earth and everything is a test. And Mm -hmm. the test is like, are you going to show up? Are you going to do your part? Because you're still here for a reason. I feel like this is like getting really heady, but I feel like our human, like our temporary human experience, might be like this drop in the ocean. But what it does for our soul is going to be so great. So you still have this mm-hmm. great responsibility because I believe that we are eternal beings. That Fair. your soul is an eternal eternal being, and that this is just temporary. But I'm gonna like use this moment in my eternal life to. Mm learn as much as I can and to do as much good as I can because mm-hmm. I want that for my soul because it makes, I can, I know I wreck, mm-hmm. I have a relationship with my spirit and I know when it feels good. And so you already mm-hmm. know, you already know what you're meant to do. You already know like how to live in your purpose. Even mm-hmm. if it feels like you don't, there are ways to find out. And if you can continue following your curiosity mm-hmm. in serving people and yourself along the way, then I think you're going to be, I I think we're going to be fine.
0: That my friends was my conversation with Noor Tajori. You can follow her at Noor and me at Gillian Zagansky on Instagram. You can always DM me with comments and questions because I'm always dying to hear what you're thinking of the show. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. Our next guest is something of a legend, and I'm more nervous than I'd care to admit. Until next time.